0: You're listening to the Good Samaritan Anglican Church Podcast. The following sermon was recorded on July 8th, 2018. A reading from the prophet Ezekiel, the second chapter, beginning at the first verse. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me, and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord." And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them. Whether they hear or refuse to hear, they are a rebellious house. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me. And it had writing on the front and on the back. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. So how many of you know what the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States says? I had to look it up. Uh, And when I looked it up, I, I read the first part, which you said very well. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And to me, that is one of the most amazing, most wonderful, most blessed things that we have as Americans, that we have this right to gather without fear of persecution, without fear of consequence that we are allowed to gather for worship whenever and wherever we want to. That's amazing. That is a blessing. And it's a blessing that we can often take for granted. Because we just show up on church, we never have any fear of any of those things, we just come to church. It's what we do. But there are many Christians throughout the world who are forced to worship in secret. And they risk their lives every time they try to gather with the fellowship of believers to share their faith with one another to build one another up in the body of Christ. People in places like China and like Myanmar and like places in the Middle East that are Islamic countries. It is forbidden to gather as a church in those places. It's against the law. And so when you gather in those places, if you dare to do so, you could be put in jail, You could be tortured, or you could even lose your life in some circumstances. We never have to worry about that. But because we never have to worry about it, it's easy for us to forget what a blessing it is for us to be in a country where we can worship as we're doing right now. But what are we doing with this right to freely practice our faith in Jesus? Are we taking every opportunity to use this freedom to its fullest, And how is God calling you to exercise your freedom in faith? Unfortunately, many have chosen to exercise their freedom of religion by walking away from the faith. By choosing not to express any religion or choosing to express a religion other than the truth found in Christianity. And from our perspective, this is most certainly a sad choice. The Christian faith has played a significant role in American history. But it's hard to say that America is a Christian nation. Why is that? Well, let's just look at some statistics for a moment. There's a, a group called the Barna Group, and their whole uh, goal is to, to do studies by phone surveys and other means to assess the religious life of people in America. America. And so they they ask questions about how people vote. They ask people about how their faith impacts how they vote. They ask people about their religious practices. They ask people what they believe. And they do these surveys regularly so that people like us in the church can take a pulse on what religion in America looks like today to help us as we disciple in the church and to help us to reach those who don't know Jesus. And they released a report in 2016 called The State of the Church, And in that report, they said that roughly 73% of Americans self-identify as Christians. Which is pretty good, when you think about it. 73%. And so, uh, you might be tempted to look at a statistic like 73%, almost three-quarters of America self-identifying as Christian, and say, well, maybe this is a Christian nation. Maybe this is a Christian nation. But this is just people who, on a phone survey, say... I'm a Christian. So they decided to scratch a little bit more, to dig a little bit deeper, and they asked a couple more questions. They wanted to, uh, to figure out what a practicing Christian would look like. And so if you're a if you're a sociologist, you have to define these things pretty carefully so that you can ask questions that are achieving the results that you're looking for. So they decided to define a practicing Christian as someone who attends a service, a religious service, at least once a month. And says that their faith is important in their life This is a, a fairly low bar for practicing Christian attend service once a month And say that your faith is important in the way you live your life Only 31% of Americans respond to the survey in that way Only 31% compared to 73% self-identifying as Christians But that question didn't ask anything about beliefs. What do people actually believe is their faith? What they say is their christian faith is that consistent with what we know to be the christian faith what we read about in the bible and so they asked a few more questions to get at what people actually believe Uh, and so for this they were trying to define what an evangelical christian is here and they didn't just ask people on the phone would you could describe yourself as an evangelical christian they wanted uh, to, to get rid of those labels so they just asked questions about doctrine and so people uh, asking this question, it's not evangelical versus Catholic. There are Catholic Christians who could answer these questions affirmatively and be described as an evangelical Christian for the, the purpose of this. But here's what they were asking about. They, they said that evangelical Christians would feel that sharing their faith is very important in their life today, believe that they have a personal responsibility to share their religious beliefs with non-Christians, believe that Satan exists, believe that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth, asserting that the Bible is accurate in all that it teaches, believing that eternal salvation is possible only through grace, not works, and describing God as the all-knowing, all-powerful, perfect deity who created the universe and still rules it today. So you could be a Catholic and affirm that. You could be an Orthodox Christian and affirm that. You could be a Protestant and affirm that. This is basic Orthodox Christianity. Only 7% of the American population can answer that question affirmatively. And so we have a difference between 73% of Americans self-identifying as Christian in some form, and 7% who have beliefs consistent with that Christian faith that they're self-identifying with. That's a pretty large gap. So what do Americans actually believe? Well, turning to another study, this one by a man named Christian Smith. He was trying to figure out what the youth in America believe. What do teenagers believe? And so he talks to lots of teenagers, thousands of teenagers, both in the church, people who grew up in Christian families, grew up going to church, going to Sunday school, and uh, more secular teenagers who had no association with church at all, trying to figure out what teenagers in America believe today. And he found a lot of consistency in their beliefs across the board Both those who were more secular and those who had grown up in the church and went to church regularly And it was so consistent that he decided he needed to give this a label And so he called it moralistic therapeutic deism Moralistic therapeutic deism and there are five uh, key beliefs of moralistic therapeutic deism First of all a god exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth we could probably all affirm that. That's a, that's a Christian belief, but it's also a generic belief. So there's a little wiggle room in there to believe a little bit outside of the Christian faith. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. And by extension, uh, they would also say that you could probably arrive at those same moral conclusions through reason, uh, but religion is a useful vehicle to get there because the point of religion is morals it's it's building up a a sense of, of a moral framework three the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself four god does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when god is needed to resolve a problem and finally good people go to heaven when they die good people go to heaven when they die This is the basic belief that Christian Smith found across most teenagers in America in their survey. And then by extension he found that the reason those teenagers believe that is that that's what their parents believe as well, whether in the church or out of the church. This is what most Americans believe. This is the the religious framework of our country today, moralistic therapeutic deism. It's a belief that there is a God out there somewhere, because that's kind of comforting to know we're not alone, and to know that that there's there's nothing senseless in it that there's some kind of a structure behind it but that that god is not too involved in my life and doesn't particularly care what i do or how i do it but yet there's still a god that i can blame when my car breaks down or when i don't have a job or any of those other things i don't have to turn to him uh, when things are going well i can just turn to him and accuse him when things are going poorly and that that god doesn't have to be specifically identified with jesus Or with the God of of the Bible it could be just sort of a generic God. This is what most Americans believe and so when you try and figure out that gap between 73% of Americans feeling that they are self-identified as Christians and then 7% of Americans holding beliefs that are consistent with the Christian faith, what you find is that gap in between is filled up with these generic beliefs these generic beliefs to call America a Christian nation can lead to the dangerous notion that the culture we live in and our Christian faith are one and the same and they're not it can also lead us to believe as the church that the work of evangelism has been mostly completed in our country and it hasn't been there's a lot of work yet to do even within the church Because remember, 31% of America's population attends church at least once per month, and 7% hold beliefs that are consistent with the Christian faith. And that means there's a gap between 7% and 31% of people who attend church at least once per month and are holding beliefs that are consistent not with the Christian faith, but something closer to this moralistic, therapeutic, generic, deistic faith. That's a scary thought when you think about it. The church has not been doing a good job of discipling, and the church has not been doing a good job of evangelizing. And this brings me to Ezekiel. We read in Ezekiel today about the calling of this prophet. Now, there were different prophets that preached at different times, and each one has a a particular setting in the history of Israel to which they were speaking. And Israel's context happens within the context of the exile. When the people of of Israel were cast out of of Palestine, the the land that God had given them, and they were forced to live in exile in a place called Babylon, conquered by a foreign power. And we tend to think of this as something that, that happened and then everybody was in Babylon, but it actually happened in stages over a number of years, in part because there was both a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom of Israel at that time, living as separate nations, divided from one another. And so Ezekiel actually gets up into Babylon uh, years before Jerusalem falls, at least 10 years before Jerusalem falls, and he receives this call to be a prophet about five years before Jerusalem calls. And here's what God calls Ezekiel to do. He said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to the nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants are also impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. That's a pretty exciting call, isn't it? Think about for a moment if I, if I said, I'm going to give you a message for someone. I'm going to write it down for you. I'm going to give it to you. I want you to go and tell them. But here's the thing. They're not going to like what you have to say. They might beat you up for it. They might even kill you for it. And they're not going to hear. They're not going to hear anything you have to say. They're going to ignore it all. You ready? Let's go. That's not a very exciting call. And that's the situation that ezekiel finds himself in he's challenged with telling his nation The people of god that they have fallen away from god that they have strayed far away from him That they have gone after other gods And that they are not living up to the covenant that god had called them to Israel was a rebellious house in ezekiel's day because they were the covenantal people of god And yet they had turned away from him This is the people that God had had called to himself, starting with Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham, and then with Abraham's son, and then with Abraham's grandson, Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons, which became the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they found themselves in Egypt, and then God sent them Moses. And Moses was their prophet, and Moses wrote down the law of God. Moses wrote down exactly what God was calling his people to. Moses wrote down this covenant between God and God. And his special chosen people the sons of israel and this is what they had turned away from this people knew the content of what was in that law this people knew what they were supposed to do this people knew that they weren't supposed to go after other gods but they had ignored god they had ignored his law they had ignored that covenant that made them a special chosen people And they found themselves in exile because of it. America, too, is a rebellious house. But it's not because that we were the covenant people of God and we've turned away from that covenant. It's because our problem goes back even further. It goes back to Adam. And we are full of people, this nation is full of people who have continued in the way of Adam and not given their hearts to the Lord. This is the problem of sin. It's a universal problem. It's a disease that infects all of us. And the thing that makes a Christian different from a non-Christian is not that the Christians have it all together and they've figured it all out and they don't sin anymore, and the non-Christians are dirty, despicable people who can't keep themselves from sinning. The difference is that we're all sinners, and the Christians are the ones who have realized that it takes God to save them. It takes God to deliver them and bring them out of the muck and the mire of their sin and their lives to turn to him and to be reconciled to him. That's the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. America is a rebellious house because it's full of people who have rebelled against God. So what do we do about it? What do we do as a church when many of the people who sit in the pews every Sunday in churches across America don't even know what the content of the Christian faith is. What we need to do, what our calling is, is to do exactly what Jesus told us to do. Go and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. This is the thing, more than any other thing, that will save America. That will save any people is the church rising up and fulfilling its god-given mission and so we need to make disciples we need to disciple the people in our churches and we need to evangelize the people who don't know jesus that's the only thing that will make a difference there are different approaches to evangelism for different times Ezekiel's job was to go to his people the covenant people of God who knew the Old Testament who knew what God required of them and Call them to repentance But when we see in the book of Acts The approach of the church towards those who don't believe there were actually two different approaches broadly one was the approach Towards the jews and one was the approach towards the gentiles and so we can roughly categorize these as the approach of peter who went to go seek after the jews and paul who went to seek after the gentiles when you look at paul at peter's sermons as peter preaches to the jews as on the day of pentecost what he does is he reminds them that they are the chosen people of god that they've turned away from god and that they need to repent and that jesus is their only hope But he's speaking to a people who already know the basic content of the faith when you look at paul paul has a very different problem to deal with and so we see an example of him in acts chapter 17 where he goes to a town among the gentiles and he goes into the place where all of their religious temples were because they were they were pagans they worshiped lots of different gods and what he sees there is one altar to an unknown god to a God that, that they, they didn't know who it was. They wanted to hedge their bets, right? Because they, they, they knew about that God, and they knew about Apollo, they knew about Zeus, they knew about you know, all these, these gods and goddesses. But they wanted to hedge their bets just in case there was a God that they didn't know about. They wanted to put an altar there so they could worship that God too. And so Paul's approach is to go into this place and look at that and speak to the people. And he, what he says is, I see that you are a very religious people. And you're so religious, in fact, that you even have an altar to an unknown God. And I'm here to tell you today that I know who that God is. And that becomes his platform. That's how he starts to speak to them. This group of people who had no knowledge of the scriptures. Who had no knowledge of the God of the Old Testament. Who had no knowledge of Jesus. And friends, that's more and more the approach we need to take in America today. In America that is full of moralistic, therapeutic deism, that has no real understanding or idea about the content of the scriptures, about the person and work of Jesus, about the nature of sin, about our fallen humanity, most people have no idea about any of those things. And so our starting place is a very different starting place than that of Billy Graham when he began his evangelistic ministry. We can't start with a place of you're all sinners And i'm pointing to jesus because he's your savior We have to back up from that and point to the fact that there is a god That he loves you That he has a purpose for your life It's a different approach It's the same content because you eventually have to get to the fact that people are sinners That they're in need of a savior that jesus is that savior But you have to start from a different place And so in each generation, there's a different approach that we need to take to reach those people. In each culture, there's a different approach. In fact, when it comes down to it, each individual person needs a tailor-made approach. And so when we listen to God, while we listen to the people that we meet, we begin to see where that person is in their relationship with God, how far they are from God, what they know and what they don't know, and we can begin to tailor the faith to them. my mom uh, had a, a phrase she always liked to use which i think is a great phrase for evangelism today she said you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar have you heard that one before yeah you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar and this is a biblical concept too when it comes down to it it's a biblical concept because the words of scripture it says in the psalms are sweeter than honey than honey on my lips than honey in the comb and it says in another place in the Psalms chapter 34 Psalm 34 verse 8 oh taste and see that the Lord is good taste and see that the Lord is good blessed is the man who takes refuge in him this is a compelling approach in America today to let people know that God is good that God loves them That God does have a purpose for their life. That they don't have to drift about from thing to thing, serving themselves and wondering what this life is all about. Because there's a God who gives that life meaning. And then we can invite them to taste and see that the Lord is good. To try God out. To see what God is like. To test his character. And in doing that, they'll start to discover that this is a God who loves them. Who does have their best interests in mind. They'll start to discover that they are a sinner in need of a savior and they'll start to be ready to have a conversation about how they can find that salvation that comes only through Jesus Christ. But if we start out from the other place, from the place of condemnation and judgment, then they'll turn their ears off and they'll think of us what they think of every other Christian, that Christians are judgmental, that they're bigoted, that they're hateful. This is unfortunately the reputation that the church has in America today. How are we going to counteract that notion? With a light bulb. With a really big light bulb. That's what Jesus says. But he backs up from there. He talks about salt first. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if that salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out of and trampled under people's feet. Our family was traveling last week, and we, uh, we got bagels, and we got some bread, but we forgot to get butter. And bagels and bread, they don't taste as good without butter on them. And so we, we went to a little, it was amazing, this little uh, Middle Eastern Indian grocery store, and I went to find butter, and they had salted butter, which we never get. We always get unsalted butter in our family. And so we got this and I brought it back to our room and we put it on the bread and on the bagels and everyone said, this is the best butter I have ever tasted. Oh my goodness, it was so good. It was so delicious, right? Right? Even my wife said it was the best butter she had ever tasted. Salt makes things good. Too much salt is not so good, but salt makes things taste better salted caramel, for instance. Anyone? Yes. Yes, indeed. That proves the point. So we are called to be salt. We're supposed to make this world a tastier place to be. Christians can bring that saltiness into the world because this world is full of unsavory things and Christians can be a presence in the world that makes it taste better. And when the world tastes better, people will recognize that and they'll say, oh, salt. Salt in butter is a pretty good thing. (laughs) You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, Jesus says. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are called to be a light in a dark place. This world is dark because it's full of sin. But Christians have the opportunity to bring the light of God into it, to shine light in the dark places, to make the world a better place. And when we do that, people will see our good works and give glory to our Father who's in heaven. This is a catch-more-flies-with-honey-than-with-vinegar approach to evangelism. It doesn't start with condemnation, it starts with the love of God. It eventually gets to the conviction, but it's the Holy Spirit who does the convicting. Our approach needs to be winsome, which means it needs to be attractive or appealing in appearance or character. So what can we do as Christians in America today? Well, first of all, I think we need to pray for our leaders. We need to pray for our president. We need to pray for the Congress. We need to pray for the Supreme Court and the other judges. We need to hold them up, whether they're Christians or not. And pray that they would make good and wise decisions to fulfill the godly calling that they have. To promote the good and to punish wickedness and vice. And second, we need to pray for all those in America who don't know Jesus. For all those in America who don't have a robust Christian faith. Who don't know the basic understanding of what Jesus did for us. How he saves us and how deep our problem of sin actually is. And then we need to be obedient to god we need to go therefore and make disciples we need to be out in the world being salt and light among those who don't know jesus listening to god for his direction and obeying his call each and every day and then whether they hear or refuse to hear as god said to ezekiel they will know that a christian has been among them they will know that they've been in contact with someone who knows Jesus. America is a wonderful place to live. We should seek its good. We should protect its freedoms. And we should seek justice for those who are oppressed. But we must also remember that this is not our true home, that we are citizens of the kingdom of God, and we are ambassadors of that kingdom to every person that we meet. And so I'll close today with Peter's words in 1 Peter to the Christians among the pagans. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. May it be so among us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this faith that you have passed down to us from generation to generation. We give you thanks for each person who spoke the faith to us and helped us to put our faith in you. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be salt and light in Middleburg and Clay County, in our nation and around the world. That you would help us to share your love with a world that doesn't know it. That you would help us to share your purpose in a world that's full of purposelessness that you would help us to share your salvation for those whose debt to sin is more than they can bear we pray lord that you would make us missionaries help us to be like paul help us to be like peter help us to be like billy graham Help us to see the need around us and respond so that people may see our good works and glorify you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a production of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg, Florida. For more sermons, sermon notes, and information about our congregation, please visit www.goodsamaritananglican.org sermons. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please subscribe and leave us a review with your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. God bless you.